Well, good morning. I'm going to tell you what, I've had a few introductions in my life, but that one just about tops them all. I don't think I've met a sweeter, more lovable man's man pastor than you got at this church. He is on the top of the shelf. And it's so nice to be with you. And, you know, uh, 10 days ago, this wasn't even planned, however many days ago it was. Uh, I'll give you just a little short review. Six months ago, this date was open, and I don't have open dates. For a year minimum, I, it's every Sunday. And then into ne the next year, mostly about half of it's done. By the time I get to that, I'm two years ahead. I, this date would not fill. COVID came along. This date, a lot of dates didn't fill then. Eight cancellations right in a row because churches couldn't gather. And then all those churches called and said, send us videos. So I'm speaking right now at a church in Oregon on video because they wouldn't let us meet. I have the strangest sense that God wanted us here with you and you here with us to get to know you and to love on you a little bit. And it dawns on me that steps, which I, and it, I don't know how to say it because I haven't said it, but maybe twice this week and never put it in this term before. Steps are little bitty things. They're just little steps. But they're so vital to God that they're ordered of the Lord. And ordered, and I said this last night and it just stuck with me. Ordered means orderly. It's not chaotic. And it also means it's a command. It's ordered. So steps are ordered of the Lord without chaos. And I've never had a smoother transition to go somewhere I wasn't planning on going and just be there and be loved on like this church and your leadership have loved on me. And Rick and Lisa, where I, I can't see very good because of the lights on my eyes. Where art thou? Would y'all stand up a second? I, I want you to meet this couple if you haven't met them. Uh, the Labooms are two of the most amazing and wonderful friends we've ever had. And uh, when you talk about greatness, first of all, she has an amazing anointing as a woman's minister and teacher to women. But he, uh, you wouldn't know this if I don't tell you, he was uh, a DOD contractor. That's how we met. I'm a contractor with the Department of Defense, and I do military tours worldwide. And I just have to go to Hawaii on military tours. <laughs> Life is so unfair. But uh, I do. It's called uh, Pacific Command, PECOM. And I, I stay at a hotel called Halikoa. And it's one of the most amazing hotels in the world. Has the largest footprint on Waikiki of all the great hotels there. All the pictures you see in... The Hawaii show, Hawaii Five on you'll see the Halikoa all the time. This man not only built the largest hotels in the world for the United States military in the largest city and city states in the world, he also, uh, just in a, about a year's time, did a $105 million upgrade on the, on the hotel he was at for a number of years at, in Hawaii. And when I was assigned to work with the military, which covers all the bases, didn't matter what branch of service. He invited me to stay at the Holly Corps. And with the Department of Defense, I'm, I have a rank 
<laughs> I'm pretty rank. <laughs> but uh, I'm an 07, which is the one-star general. Now, I don't give orders. I don't give commands. But that rank was given to me so that my association with military personnel gives me rank with admirals and generals so that I can work with all the folks that they command. And he put me in the best room in the hotel with my sweet wife, overlooking the whole Pacific Ocean. I was spoiled rotten. And every time we've gone there, he took care of us. And God gave him the ability as a contractor, managing the law, all those hotels were under his management. He invited me to speak to his employees, 1,200 employees in over 800 rooms. That's not a small operation. And I went and spoke to, and almost all the women that are house cleaner or room, you know, take care of rooms. And the, uh, the guys that did all the landscaping and the chefs, the most amazing chefs in the world. And they put them all in a room and he let me minister. You see, I'm not called to the well. I'm called to the sick. Those that don't know Jesus, that's my mission field. I go to church on Sunday so I can maybe win a loss. Whoever heard of a sinner going to church on Sunday, but every now and then one slips in. And I want to reach that, that person that doesn't know Christ that Sunday. And I also want to model. <laughs> I want to model evangelism so that some young person sitting there can say, he's fat, ugly, and stupid, but I love what he does, and I want to do what he does. And my wife told me to quit saying I was fat, ugly, and stupid. She said I wasn't stupid. <laughs> and then I go so I can get all the money out of them I can while I'm there because the church sponsors me, not the government. And I have not sold out for 30 pieces of silver. We ain't going to do that. That's why I go to churches. So now you understand. And I want to tell you. That day, speaking at the Holiko Hotel to all of those, and most of them are, are Filipino women, and they're the most lovely, like, if you've never met Filipino people, you haven't met the human race yet. They are the sweetest nature. They just have a nature about them that's so precious. And I made friends that day with that hotel. And every time we go there, it's almost a fight to see who gets to carry my bags to our, our bags to our room. It's, it's an argument over who gets to clean my room. I never run out of coffee. I'll have 10 coffee packs in my room, you know, because they love me and I love them. Love is a two-way street. And in the Bible, it says, the, the Lord tells us, if you return unto me, I will return unto you. But he leaves it up to us to make the first step. And today, if you don't know Christ, this is your chance to return. How do you return to someplace you've never been? But that's what it means. Because in the beginning, when God created heaven and earth, he created man. Then we had the fall. Well, he's saying to all of humanity, return to me. And he says, and I'll return to you. So I am an evangelist. Not a pastor, never will be a pastor, and churches all over the world say, thank you, Jesus. He's not a pastor. I'd be a terrible pastor. You didn't tithe, I'd check the books, and I'd be on your door knocking on Monday. Where's your tithe? But I grew up in a, in a minister's home. My dad was a pastor, and I'm what you call a PK. And my daughter said she always wanted to marry a PK. 
what she did one day, I had this young fellow that God gave us in our ministry, and his mother was a prostitute, and he's a PK. And uh, she said, you have to be more specific when you pray for God to give you a PK, whatever. But he's, <laughs> that's truth. And he's one of my greatest associate advantages I ever had. And he's a great son-in-law, perfect husband to my daughter and great daddy to my granddaughters. But I grew up in a PK, in a preacher's home. And when I was born, my mom almost died. And she never recovered. I found that out when I was nine years old. Accidentally, I was passing the slightly open door to her room. She had a room to herself in our home because all the equipment that made her breathe and keep her heart beating Filled the whole room. There wasn't room for her own husband, my dad, to be in the room with her. But he had a room right beside her. And if she made the slightest moan, he could hear it. He was there. But that room was filled with all this kind of blue-greenish equipment, plastic stuff you could see through, and whirring stuff and moving. And at nine years old, he was sitting next to her bed. And I overheard him say, Lois, darling. He, always, he never called her Lois. It was Lois, darling. And little kids, they don't call me Dave. They call me Dave Reaver. Dave Reaver. I don't know why they put that together. It was Lois Darling. And I heard him say, Lois Darling, ever since Davey Boy was born, you struggled so much to be, just breathe. You know what Davey Boy heard that day? It's your fault she's dying. If you kill yourself, she'll get better. That's what the devil whispered in my ear. If you kill yourself, she'll get better. I want all the children that can understand me that are in the room, that are old enough to hear me. Even if your parents divorce, it's not your fault. Don't let the devil start blaming you for adult problems. You're a child and you have a right to grow up in the love and admonition of the Lord. And what a beautiful ceremony of dedication for a lovely family. They're going to San Antonio. My ranch in San Antonio we built for the Department of Defense is a beautiful ranch hour and 30 minutes from san antonio i need, i want to meet that couple invite them out to our ranch but it's built for the warriors and i i want to tell you when i heard that the first thoughts of suicide entered a little boy's mind and i would fight that demon for decades to come and everything the devil could throw my way and say it's your fault would lead me to the ultimate conclusion, it will get better if I take my life. And I want all you children to hear me. Don't listen to that voice. My mom, when she could still speak, told me, the devil's, you, don't ever fear the devil. Respect what powers he has to know that he's been around longer than we have and he knows more than we do. But with Christ, he's nothing. We, all things given us through Christ make us greater than he that's in the world. Amen. But I don't go around making fun of the devil. The Bible even tells us don't make fun of angels. So here's the facts. Now, when he whispers in my ear, I tell him, six feet back, social distance. <laughs> and stay behind me. And my mom told me he's only eight inches tall. I said, Mom, how do you know he's eight inches tall? He said he can't be any bigger than that if he can sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear. She said, don't you ever fear the devil. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I never forgot that. And so this wonderful mom that I was born to couldn't even take care of me when I was born. And I had a Mexican nanny from Matamoros, Matamoros, Mexico. 
My first language was Spanish. I did not learn English till I was six years old, and I had to go to school and learn English, and then they told me, you're not a Mexican. <laughs> Broke my Hispanic heart. It did. They said I cried for weeks, and I remember crying. I remember six years. I remember when I was five years old. Before that, it's pretty vague, but I remember from, five, from the age of five, I have a pretty good recollection of my childhood, totally. And my dad, conversely, he wasn't such a tender man to me. He was tender whenever I needed it, but he was an authoritarian. He was a disciplinarian. He was a man of God. No wuss was in that man. He was man through and through. And the belt on the bathroom said, I need thee every hour. <laughs> and he had to bring God into discipline. <laughs> Boy, he applied the board, the board of Education to the seat of learning. <laughs> I, I think I maybe had five good whippings, spankings, we called them back then, in my, in my childhood. And I learned from every one of them. And I learned to respect my dad. He died at 92 a few years back, the greatest man I've ever known. He was my dad. And when my mom had those lucid moments and could teach me, she taught me everything she could cram into my little brain because she knew her time of opportunity was very short. And I had to learn all I could from her when I could, and I learned more from her in those short little bursts of training than I learned in all the training a mom could give a kid. She taught me humor. She taught me speech. She taught me how to pronounce words and how to use what she called King's English. And, and it don't make no difference. Know how to do it would get me a whipping from her, but she never did do that. I mean, she had this little felt belt, and when she tried to spank me, I laughed so hard. Then she turned me over to Dad, and the laughing was over. I don't know why I'm spending so much time with my parents, except I look at her and see these children and this dedication. so beautiful, this beautiful family. Don't lose that touch in this church. Don't lose that family feel that you possess. We've been embraced like never before. My wife and I marveled Thursday or Friday and Saturday nights. We were in homes eating a meal. Maybe five times in 20 years. Two of them were last night and the night before. We're always put in hotels big restaurants, limousines, airplanes. We came here. I'm not emotional. I'm allergic to this carpet. <laughs> and it waters up my eyes. That's what it is. We were brought into a family. And it's, it's just real. Just don't change. Don't get phony. Don't put on a show. Don't try to be something you're not. Look at that. Thank you. I'll get back. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> so now back to reality of trying to get my emotions back. God gave me great parents, great undergirding emotion. I was, I was actually 
committed to the Lord in a dedication just almost identical to the method that and the and the presentation of that baby to the Lord and you kind of held the child up to you that was beautiful and what a beautiful little girl and what prayers and what statements were made those things last because a man did that for me and was one of my best friends all my career and he was a man that dedicated me to the Lord when I was a baby he laughed before he died he said I couldn't lift you up the way you are now <laughs> at that time I weighed 365 pounds whenever he said that I was I was I'm only half the man I used to be. And then uh, we moved to a little town called Fort Worth, Texas. And I looked up in the choir and I saw somebody I'd never seen before in my life or anything like her. She was angelic. She was 13 years old and I knew I was going to marry that girl. You've heard that stuff before, but I'm telling you, that's, that's the truth. And that week, I asked her to marry me, and she slapped me. She said, I'm only 13 years old. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. <laughs> Slap me again. I mean, she's got a great right hook, let me tell you. So you thought I was injured in Vietnam. Uh-uh, she did this to me. <laughs> no. If you love me, you'll wait for me. I said, I'll pick you up at 10. I can wait. I knew what she meant. And I want all the teenagers to hear me. We were both virgin when we got married six years later. It's okay to talk about virginity. Now, used to, the churches say, yeah, and the schools would say, no. Now, the schools say, yeah, and the churches say, ooh, don't embarrass the children. Virginity is something that God honors, and it's worth waiting and teenagers, if you listen to me, God will give you a second chance in a new birth in being born again. But don't press your luck. Stay pure to each other and to God. And your day will come and you'll have everything. Sound like a Las Vegas singer, don't I? But here's the facts. We waited. And now when I go to public schools and speak and I say, we were both virgin when we married, I get standing ovations from the girls. <laughs> The boys salute in an unusual fashion. <laughs> I thought they were telling me their IQ was one. But you know what? If somebody doesn't say it, who will? And if not me, who? And if not now, when? So I go into public schools. And I've been doing that since 1976. And I've now addressed over 8 million students in public schools. How about that? Now... That's a strange statistic of an unusual event or events. So there's no credibility, big me, little you in that. I've just addressed that many kids. That, you know, that's about eight times four, 30, that's about 32 million pimples. <laughs> and when I walk out and they look at me, pimples don't mean near as much as they used to. And, and you say, well, but Dave, you don't look that bad. I don't now. At least that's my ego talking. Uh, some of you have known me from years back. You might remember I didn't have a nose. I just had a little piece of it right here. I had no eyelids, and my mouth was inverted, and I drooled. That's why wherever I go, I'll, and now it's habit. Sometimes I want to wipe my mouth, but I'm not drooling because I have lips, I have eyelids, and I have a nose, and it's a boy. <laughs> he was born at Brook Army Medical Center 36 months ago. And they made me eyelids, and I've got lips again, the better to kiss you with, darling. 
and, I'm, and I can wink. But the fact is, it's never going to be normal. Humpty Dumpty had a big fall. All the king's horses, and he's got a few of them, and all the king's men, doctors, and nurses, they're trying to put Humpty back together again, and this is their best effort. I'm going to tell you, I'm not ashamed of my scars and stripes. Amen, Jack. And so they've done the best they can, but I can tell you what the king's horses and king's men could not do. The king did, and on the inside, Dave Reaver does not have a scar. It's like baby skin. I have no scars internally. I don't struggle with post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't struggle with that. Now, I did at the beginning, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know I was struggling with it. I thought, well, it's normal to be like this. And certain things would send me into a, a I would count down. I'd go into a corner in the house. I'd sit down. And I would berate myself, trying to make my family understand that when I kill myself, you'll understand why I did it. Did you just follow that statement? I fought that suicide demon for 20 years following the war and for all that childhood time from the age of 9 to 20. I was so hell bent on self-destruction. I didn't know that I could be a threat to the devil. You don't realize the threat you are to the devil. And if he can get you to take yourself out, it saves him the trouble of fighting you down the way. Don't take yourself out. You are priceless to the kingdom of God. Solutions to life are not found in suicide. Yet 22 veterans a day, minimum 22, every 65 minutes a veteran kills himself. Every day, every minute of the clock, veterans are taking their life. Among the active duty, two years, three years ago, it was one a day, and now it's up to double that, but they don't publish that. But that's my personal review of what I do because with the Department of Defense who I'm a contractor I'm a resiliency trainer and in the Air Force I'm a master resiliency trainer and according to the DOD I may be the very first master resiliency trainer in Department of Defense they don't call me because I'm good-looking it's getting better but not that I know I'm just not good-looking they don't call me because my mighty military strength do you see what I'm doing I have to sit down to talk I have to sit down during worship I jumped out of a helicopter in 2010 in Iraq and I hit wrong and broke six vertebrae instantly and was paralyzed for two years and walked on a, on a with a brace on my leg and and an artificial knee and then they opened me up and did heart surgery and now I've got this steel braid that holds my chest together inside a steel bar that holds on an artificial ear and a hairpiece that was a Chinaman's before it was an American's <laughs> when I die they're going to open an ace hardware at the cemetery come get your parts thank you you bought them with your taxes and I don't mind the hairpiece but I do sometimes get embarrassed I chased it across many a church parking lot on windy days. <laughs> One day a dog brought it back. That was embarrassing. That's true. The artificial ear is wonderful. It's fun to play with. People say, do you play the piano? I say, yes, my ear. I take it off, Perry, Mary. Oh, they faint, pass out, laugh themselves to death. One day I was preaching in Jamaica, and all of a sudden the whole crowd goes, ah, and they're pointing at me with big eyes. They're not breathing. I'm thinking, oh, we're going to have Jonestown without the Kool-Aid, something they got to give. I, I checked my fly. I didn't know what was wrong. I look around. My ear was laying on my shoulder. 
peeled off like a wet band-aid. I never felt it. They were dying. I, I, I got to do something fast. So I grabbed my ear, dried the sweat, and stuck it back on. They thought it was a miracle, and they all got saved. And you thought God couldn't use you. If he can use my ear, you got it made. And I couldn't tell them as a phony ear. Then they would have thought I was a phony evangelist, and they would have stoned me. And Pastor Lynn didn't want me coming here telling you, hi, y'all, I went to Jamaica, and I got stoned. <laughs> Doesn't sound right, does it? And you're sitting there saying, Brother Dave, you're laughing about it all. You're laughing about that. You're laughing about that hair. You're laughing about your scar. Let me tell you something. I laughed my way out of hell, and I will laugh my way through those pretty gates because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Greater is he that's in me and he that's in the world. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. And that's just me. What about you? We are a threat to hell itself. Today, just our worship cooled hell 10 degrees. Don't ever, ever think you're not valuable. If God can take a heap of burned, mutilated flesh that I was left with and be of value to our United States military troops going into war zones, being a suicide prevention counselor and a resiliency trainer. If God can use me in that little, he can use you. I just want you to understand I'm no better than anybody in this room. And pastor made me think I was gold-plated. I bought it for a few seconds. Pretty good. But your self-esteem is your right to, re to call yourself a child of the king. And that's not bad ego. It's a little ego, but not bad ego. I always think of Gideon when I think of ego. Gideon, he had this huge army, and God said, I'm going to give you 300 guys. So he took 300 guys into himself. 301 men came up a whole, against the whole army of the Midianites. And he gets there, and he tells them, now, you're going to put this little fire, this little candle in a pot, and nobody can see it. We're going to sneak up on them, and then when I cry out, you Crack that pot, break it open, and the light shines, and it'll scare them to death, and it did, and they start killing each other down there. It's a laughing man, but you know what his command was? When I say, the sword of the Lord and a Gideon, <laughs> that's that little bit of ego that God gives us to say, I can do all things through Christ. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. You see, you are a child of the king humility we listen we get humiliated enough to keep us humble don't we that's just life but don't ever hide behind the guise of self humility well i'm just a poor little old king's kid you're in a mighty you're a mighty army of god's children be a threat and a fear be all that you can be that's an army slogan any army in here yeah any navy Boy, you're out of the water here, aren't you? It's a long ways. In the Air Force. There you are. Uh, let's see. Who's missing? Oh, Marines. Any Marines? All right. I finally got by with it. No Marines. Uh, any Coast Guard? Any Coasties? The reason I'm asking is because that's where God sends me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the time now to illustrate through personal experience what I'm trying to say to you. And I'm going to ask your forgiveness for what's already been said and about to be said because it sounds like, oh, Dave can't talk about anything but himself. Well, let me tell you something. It's not 
me, but Christ in me. That I want to be that broken pot that lets the light shine in darkness. But you can't shine in darkness until the pot's broken. God can't use a vessel that's never been broken. And then when he puts it back together, the light shines through the cracks. Those are called scars. And scars have stories to tell. And I can tell you all the stories of somebody else's scar. I can talk about Peter, James, and John, or Peter, Paul, and Mary for all I can. What I'm telling you doesn't come from somebody else's experience. I'm talking about me and Jesus Christ. And when you absorb the best I can give you, it might dawn on you it's you and Jesus Christ I'm trying to get to. I want you to understand I'm as normal as you. Well, probably a lot worse off than you because I'm not academically that great. I was in the top 10% of the lower one-third of my class. <laughs> I majored in math and found out five out of four people don't understand fractions. <laughs> if you didn't get that, pastor's teaching on fractions next Sunday. <laughs> Why do they call me to do what I do? Because a man with a scar has a story to tell. That's why Jesus chose the hard road, not the easy road. They mutilated him, scarred him. What is it that is his standing eternal evidence that he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity? It is found in the book of Romans when John saw him as a lamb that had been slain. How did he know that lamb had been slain? Because that lamb still has the scars the marks of the murder weapon called a cross. They hung him on, nailed him like an animal to a tree. And he bears those scars to this day. In all of heaven, the only person that's going to have any scars is Jesus. You'll be looking for me, you can't find me. Not if you're looking for scars. But look for the best looking guy in heaven. And it'll be Jesus and I'll be standing close to him so you'll find me there. Am I making any sense yet? Am I getting across? Any? Well, let me, let me just put it in the framework of the scriptures. If you have your iPhones, turn with me. I love to say that. I, I'd like you to look, and uh, there we go. At, uh, let, me, let me get it up here. I'm sorry I'm slow, but when you don't have all your fingers, it's, never mind. It's like hitchhiking with no thumb. They think you're shaking your fist at them. You try a different finger, they try to run over you. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. There's still too much military left in me. Uh, okay, here we go. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse, I think it's verse 4. Here we go. Verse 3 says, the last words of verse 3 say, The God of all comfort, say that with me. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any trouble. So all of our tribulation helps meet any of someone else's trouble. Let me show you how it works. By the comfort wherewith we are comforted of God. Now, what does that simply mean? Turn it around and put it in everyday language. We are comforted by God in our time of trouble, hurt, brokenness, so that we can turn around and comfort someone that's in all kinds of hurt, brokenness, and pain, 
Now, you got to listen carefully to how I'm saying this. You have a scar to prove it. What do I say about scars? They have a story to tell. Do you think the scars are just epidermical? That means in skin only? There are some of you in this room right now that have more scars, more damaging evidence of horrible experience in life than I can hold a candle to. And you may have the most perfect skin in the nation. Why do I say that? Because some of you have been molested when you were a child, raped as a young woman, abused as a young man, and you'll never speak of it to a living soul. Your own spouse doesn't know it. And yet it affects your relationship sometimes. And he or she as a spouse may sit back and say, I don't understand why you're that way. Because it's something so horrific and so embarrassing and so destructive. You hide it. You cover it. You don't want anybody to know. You bathe trying to wash it away. You can't. You can't wash away your scar with a bath any more than I can wash away my scars with a bath. But it's a scar for heaven's sake. What does that mean? A scar for heaven's sake. A scar is three things. One, it's evidence. Well, it's evidence in all three things. It's evidence you got hurt. Amen? Anybody want to deny that a scar is the evidence you got hurt? It's evidence you got over it. So if you got a scar... It means the hurt was healed. If you don't have a scar from the hurt, you're still an open, bleeding, hemorrhaging wound, and it will ultimately kill you. You have to be healed to move forward. I'm letting these words settle. So if you have a scar, it means you got hurt and you got over it. What's the third thing a scar is? It's evidence of hurt, evidence of healing, and evidence of empathy. Say empathy. empathy. How many of you know what empathy is? Most of you probably forget. It's not sympathy. Sympathy is, oh, you poor thing. As we say in Spanish, pobrecito. You Spanish-speaking folks got it. Oh, you poor thing. That's what we call comfort. But I'm going to tell you something. That scars your preaching material. That's your story. And when somebody's hurt like you were and they're bleeding and hemorrhaging and losing hope, you're the light in their world of darkness. And you can say, I know how you feel and you have a scar to prove it. Because if you don't have a scar, you hadn't been down that road, you never hurt like that. Please don't say to somebody, I know how you feel. They know in a second you're a liar and nothing out of your mouth will they trust from that point on. Don't ever say, I know how you feel if you don't. I've never said to a divorcee, I know how you feel. The closest I ever came was when children would look at me and scream and run, and I felt abandoned by the human race, divorced by the, by the human race. That's the closest I can come, but I'm going to tell you something. I don't think I could live without that woman that stood by me a while ago. In fact, I would be dead if it wasn't for her. There's no way I could have gone through what I've gone through without her. And I'll give you a little more of that in a minute. I've got to watch the time. I wanted to be through about 12, but he said midnight's a little late. I'm teasing. I'm saying to you, sometimes people are trying to be kind and they try to say, I understand. What goes along with this statement of, I know how you feel, you know what the other big lie is? We say, I know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. 
Sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking. So how can you know what I'm thinking if I don't know what I'm thinking? And sometimes I speak and then I think, which is terrible. <laughs> so what we say matters so much to those that are broken and hurting and bleeding. If you've never been broken, don't tell somebody you know how they feel. And I learned that from the scriptures teaching us that we are comforted by the Spirit of God wherewith we give comfort. What did Jesus say? I will send you another comforter. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. So let's analyze comfort. I've got a definition from the Greek. Oh, I'm really smart now. Someone said, uh, do you know a little Greek? I said, yes. He runs a pizza parlor in Chicago. He's real short. That's the only little Greek I know. Sometimes I am funny, aren't I? I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> so I'm going to define for you. And, and I'm not used to this phone yet, but I'll, I'll get it figured out. This is the definition of comfort. To encourage, to strengthen, to exhort, and to instruct. Where's all that poor little thing in there? There somewhere is a painting I haven't seen it, but it, I've heard, heard about it, of George Washington helping a wounded soldier back up on his horse. <clears throat> and the caption underneath says, <clears throat> General Washington comforts the soldier. Well, that, that's not how we do it in America. And all you military guys know this one. When you get hurt in America, you get a purple heart, and they put you on a stretcher, and they take you home and figure out how much pay you're going to get in retirement for your injuries taken in war. They take you off the horse and put you on a stretcher. I'm going to comfort you this morning in this COVID junk that's going around. Let me tell you something. It's good to see you in the house of God today. Which tells me somebody around here has been comforting you. Which doesn't mean, oh, I'm so sorry, we just can't, we can't, we, let me tell you something. This man, this man, and others will say to you, stop whining, get off your stretcher, and get back on that horse. This battle's not over, and you're not dead yet. Yeah, that's the truth. Don't lay down and give up the fight because you got hurt, my word. Children fall, and they get back up to and get back on their little tricycle and learn to ride. Then they fall off their bicycle with the training wheels. They say, take the training wheels. I can still ride. And they fall. We may fall seven times, but we get up eight times. Amen? So I'm comforting you to tell you, in the time of great stress, trial, tribulation, everything's going backwards, sing out a shout and a praise. Remember that woman up here dancing around with a microphone singing, leading these, this great worship team. By the way, you got a great drummer. I don't know why you got that bulletproof glass around him up here. <laughs> I love your praising word. Y'all, you should go with me and listen to some of the church praise and worship I have to listen to. When they start out with, y'all pray for us while we try to sing. 
They start trying to sing, and I start praying. <laughs> Some of it's so bad, but bless their heart, they're doing the best they can, I'm sure. Sometimes I wish I did sit out during praise and worship, but I didn't miss it today. So I'm comforting your music group. What a great team you've got. What a great congregation. What a great pastor's team, the ministry team. And I love hearing that guy pray that prayed in, in, in service today. This morning, man, that boy can pray. And I can t- tell you when somebody's a prayer warrior. Listen to them when they pray. They, 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 their sentences are coherent. I'm not talking about praying in tongues. I'm talking about praying in language we understand. And in doing so, in public, I can tell that their private prayer life is real. I hope that makes sense to you. And I'm not going to tell you the things that I can analyze, not judge, but analyze a prayer warrior when I talk to him. I'm going to tell you it's because some things some people get in the habit of doing, and they still do it wrong, but they, they're trying their best. I'm not trying to expose him. I'm just telling you there are people around here who know how to pray. There are people around here who know how to worship. There are people around here who know how to preach. And I'm going to tell you there are people around here who know how to comfort their community in this time of COVID and encourage them to get off the stretcher, get back on your horse. Let's get this economy going. Let's get each other going. Let's pray for each other, love each other, help each other, be there when we need each other, encourage each other, instruct, do the comfort thing, get them back on their horse. And that is exactly what put me on this platform today. People never, I'm going to tell you a little secret about my wife. She, I'm going to be in trouble when this is over. You, I don't know if you saw our little travel rig out there. We live, can you live with your spouse for 10 weeks in 27 feet by 8? Think about it. We've never talked divorce. She brings up murder frequently. <laughs> if you think I live with a woman that Poor baby. Oh, baby. Oh, darling, you got hurting out there, war. Are you kidding me? She has to button my shirts because I can't. My fingers don't work. And that's about it. And then I'll get my hairpiece on straight. And then she, no, no, no. She has to fix it right. What does she know? When she was a teenager. My teenage wife sat in the bed with her little legs crossed, dragging her fingertips across my charred body because those little tiny fingertips took out all of the pain. I would go to sleep all night long. I'd wake up. She was dozing off, sitting up there, dragging her little fingertips across my tortured flesh. I'm not here because I'm tough. I'm here because somebody helped me back on my horse. Boy, you got to do something about this carpet. It's killing me this morning. We need each other, but I got one step better than need. We want each other. Being desired is much better than being decreed you have to help me I need you I can't live without you then I become a bondage a chain a burden well if I leave him he'll kill himself so I'll stick around no I never tell Brenda I need her I always tell her I love her and the last thing she hears every night and if I'm overseas I will text it through wi-fi every night no matter where I am if there's absolutely zero 
means of communication, and that happens occasionally in my travels throughout the world with our troops in those dark places. I will store up the I love you, the last thing she hears. I love you, baby. Because I don't know which morning I won't wake up. And I don't want her to ever, ever think that I went into eternity without still loving her. I love that woman. And I've dragged her through the pit of hell so many times. I've dragged her through places and put her in situations because I'm a crazy dreamer. And I think if I can think it, I can do it. I wonder where that came from. As a man thinketh so. Well, you know what? She trusts me. And one day, I kissed her goodbye at an airport. I was in the U.S. Navy Special Warfare uniform, and I kissed the little girl goodbye. Proud of myself because I didn't cry. Strong enough to be a man's man and be strong for that woman. I got about five steps, and she called my term of endearment name, Davy. Now, if she calls me David, I just go to the corner she's about to send me to. <laughs> but when she says Davy, all my defenses collapse. My knees get weak, and I'm fractured. Davy, and I stopped, and before I could turn around, tears burst over the dam of all my resistance, and my lower lids could not hold back the gush. Tears ran out my I turned around, mad at myself. I've got tears on my eyes. I said, what? And this is the question she asked me that would haunt me the rest of my life. Davy, are you coming back? And being a good warrior, I said, I'll be back without a scar. Where in the world did that come from? I could have just said, I'll be back. <laughs> then I could be governor of California and make muscles, girly man. Let me tell you something. That woman is, nobody can touch me like her. I'll be back without a scar. And when I said it, I felt a chill up my spine because I knew I just made a promise I cannot keep. Because I knew what I had never told her. I was involved in the Navy Special Warfare Command. There's only three units in it. The Navy SEALs, the Special Dive Vehicle Submarine. Special Dive Vehicle Teams, those are one and two man submarines. Run up and down the coast to North Korea. Listen to everything Kim Jong-un says in the bathroom. And the third one are called Brownwater Black Beret. Now we're called Special Boat Teams. That's it, three. The Navy SEALs, dive vehicle teams, and the Special Boat Teams. The Special Boat Teams, the Brownwater Black Beret, had the highest killed in action per capita in the war. I knew that. I was trained with that to know you may come back. You won't be who you were when you left if you come back at all. And I said, I'll be back without a scar. I walked away and it haunted me over and over. Eight months into the war, I took my first hit. July the 23rd, 1969. Eight months without a scratch. The second week in that war, I lost my spiritual virginity. I had blood on my hands. And knowing that war would take a little preacher's kid, to places he would never go in a dark world he had never seen. I just wasn't prepared for it emotionally. 
I never turned my back on God. I never turned my faith inside out for to believe there is no God, but I just felt like I'm so alone. And the guys in my barracks were worse enemies than the guys in the bush. They were trying to destroy my soul. The guys in the bush were trying to kill me. They didn't care what my soul did. And there were four of us. They called me Dudley Do-Right. The other one called me Dr. Do-Little. The third one called me Preacher Man. I thought that was a compliment. I called them pervert number one, pervert number two, pervert number three, and they thought that was a compliment. <laughs> two different worlds coexisting in one tiny little boat, 11 feet wide and 30 feet long. And on the 23rd of July, in the middle of a huge firefight, the biggest firefight I've ever been involved in, we had firefights on an average weekly. That one... 13 rockets were fired at our boat, and everyone of them missed. But something, and we don't know, it wasn't a rocket, but it had to be a rifle of some kind, we don't know what caliber, hit my right hand. I was firing two M60s on a, bi a not a tripod, but a bipod, we'll call it. And I was firing two of them. And the right one, whenever I looked, was bent all the way over, and a whole chunk was taken outside. And when it, the bullet hit the gun, and this is bizarre. And I, I've, I've only shared this two or three times publicly. When that bullet hit the gun, shrapnel came off of it, went right into my eyeball and lacerated my cheek. Three days later, the cheek would be blown off. And the eyeball didn't matter what was that. They kept me off the river three days. And the first day back on the river, right back to the place I was injured to get a body count of the enemy, to get any kind of intelligence on what kind of weapons, what casings would tell us what kind of weapons were used against us, how many estimate, how many, what direction of travel, everything we could learn about it. Well, the other thing we learned that day was that they weren't gone. They were waiting on us to come back. And on my first day back on the river, I picked up a white phosphorus grenade. Imagine the size of a Coca-Cola can. I pulled the pin and I drew back. And before I could throw the grenade, my life would change for eternity. You know, God didn't hurt me that day. God didn't shoot me. He didn't blow me up with a white phosphorus grenade and set my body on fire burning at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. No, God didn't do that. People do that to people. God didn't start the war in Vietnam. People did that. I never blamed God. To this day, I never blamed God. It wasn't his fault. He has no fault. There was one thing I didn't understand. I'll get to it in just a moment. But I want to tell you, at that moment, in my confusion, I thought we were hit by that B-40 anti-tank rocket propelled grenade that was infamous for killing us on those little fiberglass riverboats. You've got a rocket-fired grenade that can destroy a tank that thick of steel and hits a fiberglass boat you can shoot a pistol through. What happens? It turns the entire boat to white powder. Drives cocaine addicts insane. All that white powder, not enough time. Blew those boats and the bodies went down with the boats. We were listed the highest KIA, but you can't prove it. Because if you don't retrieve a body, you're MIA. And all the guys that we lost went down with the boats. Very few bodies were ever retrieved. Now you understand why I had that chill up my back. When I said I'll be back without a scar. That day, that chill 
melted into burning fire from my waist up, half my skin, blown off my body. Went blind in the eye, deaf in the ear. My face, everything not covered, blew off. If it's covered, it was second degree burn, which meant there were enough molecules of actual my flesh skin over my flesh and sinew. There was enough molecules to grow the skin back. When the skin is totally blown off, that's third degree. And if it's to the bone, it's nicknamed fourth degree, but still officially a third degree. This was blown to the bone. I looked down, I could see my heart beating. My thumb was gone. My right hand was dangling three fingers and a thumb. They put it back together. It don't work. It makes a mic stand and a preaching finger. <laughs> Repent. See? You can hear me. You can see and you say, oh, you're just being funny. No, that to me was God's promise. You're going to lose a lot, but you'll lose nothing that I need for you to have to do what I called you to do. Yeah. That's all that matters. Everything else is unnecessary. So I'm on fire. I looked down. I felt absolutely nothing. I jumped into the water. That is psych that's psychology. Your mind says you're on fire. Get in the water. Makes sense. Except... Ask any military person in this room. Phosphorus is not extinguished by water. You can't even smother it. Its byproduct of burning is oxygen, which it turns around and consumes. It consumes its own byproduct, so it doesn't have to. Ha that will burn in a vacuum. That oxygen supplied in burning will cause it. It has to burn itself out. Two weeks after my injury, they opened me up to do surgery. I burst into flames on the operating table. Two weeks after I was injured. It's all in my medical record because that stuff was blown in so forcefully. Some of it, all of it lit up, but some of it, as it went in, peeled off the burning crust and untampered by air, oxygen in the air, it went into me without being lit. Two weeks later, they opened me up in the operating room where there's more than enough oxygen. I burst into flames and I almost blew the hospital into pieces. They ran. They told me when they told me this, I said, what'd you do? He said, we ran. I said, you docs left me in there. I said, you ought to be veterinarians. They said, why? I said, because you're chicken doctors. I was so mad at them. That's all true story about it. two weeks later. I'm not exaggerating a word of this, folks. How do you exaggerate that? And when it blew, I jumped in the water and now my skin, I'm floating. Well, I went deep in the water. And I could hear myself burning, and I could still see with my left eye. My right eye went blind and went deaf in my ear. Now I got my vision back. It's not perfect, but I thank God for the vision I have, and I can hear through my ear. I can see through my ear. I can take it off and look through it. I should have taken bets on that one. That's pretty sick. I just thought that. I think that's funny right there. It's like playing the piano bear. So. I've surfaced and I can see my skin. I'm, I'm floating all over the river in pieces of my skin on fire. And when I exhaled, a ball of fire came out of my mouth. I was burned internally. My, all my larynx, my larynx and all my bronchial tubes were scorched by that fire. And the doctor said two things. One, you should never be able to speak a word again the rest of your life. And even living is impossible when you've scorched and burned your bronchial tubes. They swelled. You should have suffocated. You know what? I may not be good looking, but I'm a talker. <laughs> I don't want to shut up. I want these vocal cords that are not mine 
anymore. To proclaim through the lips that are not mine anymore. Through a swollen tongue I was suffocating through to speak clearly, articulate, and detonate the devil's best shot against me. Because I'm going to tell you, we, you, me, we are a threat to the kingdom of hell. He worries about us every morning. He has post-traumatic stress disorder. I crawled up on the bank of the river. I'm still burning. I looked at my hands, and I fell over backwards. There's more to that story. I shared it with the guys, but for time's sake, I've got to, I've got to move quickly. I fell over backwards, and everybody thought I was dead. I wasn't dead. I was tired, swimming, burning. Whoa, dude, I'll wear you out. I'm laying there, and I hear pop, 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 in comes what's called the dust off. And that dust off landed, and those big blades whipping, my skin on fire, and now totally dehydrated by the incredible heat. I was like a dry newspaper, and when that helicopter, I lit up all over me, and now flames are bouncing off. I still felt nothing, no pain. I did not feel one thing. People say, what does it feel like to have the hand grenade? I say, I don't know. I know what it felt like when it blew. Now, the rest of the story is about to take place here. And you know what's coming. They came in, threw a stretcher down. And thinking I'm dead, they just rolled me over. I'm on my face. My hands are hanging off. And they're running because they don't want to get shot by the same guy that shot me. And that little sniper's bullet went through my hand to go through another guy's heart just as easy. And they're running, carrying me. And I fell through the stretcher. Have you ever had one of those days? <laughs> Nothing went right. I got up one morning and had a bad decade. They rolled me up in wet blankets right there on the bank of that river, put me on another stretcher. Now they run and they slide me into the helicopter and away we go. And this is an estimate, but I've flown enough in helicopters and what we call fixed wing aircraft, regular planes, to estimate altitude and minutes to get to it. I would think we were about 1,500 foot altitude, which would take about, in a helicopter loaded like that, about 30 seconds to get up to that. That's how long it took for the pain to hit me. And when it hit, it started at the top of my head and it went to the bottom of my feet. Then it reversed course and went from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. Reverse and back and forth in waves of unspeakable, torturous pain that I cannot describe. I can tell you what my body sensed it doing, but I can't remember the actual sharp pains. I can only remember my reaction to it because God took that memory out. Now, what he left me was sometimes I smell my flesh burning and I smell what's called plasma blood boiling. And I, I remember the smell of my blood boiling. And that will keep me awake all night. And God only did that to remind me of what he brought me out of. And if people say, hell's a party. Well, you're welcome to take the place I've already been to in and beyond. Because I'm not going there. I've had enough of the taste of hell on earth. I don't want to know the other. And I'm going to tell you, there is a hell and you better not want to go there. And there's a heaven to gain. And guess who's coming? Jesus is coming back soon. Do you believe that? Put your hands together. Put your hands. Yeah, you believe he's coming back? Well, you know what? He's our dust off. 
He's going to pick us up on the bank of the river Jordan. He's going to fly us home, and there we will have no more pain, no more war. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Yeah. And I won't smell my flesh burning ever again. Ever. And they got me in the helicopter. They think I'm dead. And the, I look over and I can't see, but out of a little piece of the blanket, it's over my head. I'm, I'm totally covered, wrapped up in this wet blanket, trying to suppress this flame. And I saw he was messing with paperwork. He's, he's keeping my... He to, they have to tell how you died, where you died, who killed you, and all that stuff. And everything has to be documented. And he's filling out paperwork, and I'm laying there, and the pain hit, and I let out a yell, and it scared him. He almost jumped out of the helicopter. The pilot, no kidding, lost control. We're dropping like a rock. We're spinning and dropping. I think, oh, Lord, we're auto-rotating. We're going to crash. I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> they got me to Saigon and then to Japan, and I'm hurrying now. In Japan, I did something really not smart. I don't like to say stupid in front of kids, so I'm not going to say stupid. But I was not smart. I asked for a mirror. And they did something really not smart. They brought it to me. And they held it over my face about this high up. And with my good eye, I looked up. And I knew I had broken that promise. I would go home scarred, maimed, burned. I, I, I don't want her to see me. By remote chance, I lived through this, and they had already taken my last will and testament. I was in Japan to die so I wouldn't be a body count in Vietnam for Walter Cronkite to add to his death list every day. Frightening America. I said, I don't want her to see me. That's what I said in my heart. So when they walked away, I said, I'm going to end it now because I know if I die the way I am, they will not open the casket. She'll never see me. She'll only remember that mighty man of war, I said, I'll be back without a scar. So I pulled the tube out, and I laid my, back, my head back, and I waited to die. I went over kid in this room, I went to, you listen to me on the front row, aren't you? Suicide's not the solution. I pulled that tube, laid my head back, waited to die, and I got hungry. It was the wrong tube. <laughs> They're not marked. Suicide tube, feeding tube, plasma, medicate. <laughs> I couldn't even kill myself right. You don't get any lower than that. They came in and for punishment for pulling that tube, they said, we're just going to send you home. You can die on the airplane. We're getting you out of here. And they sent me home to Brook Army Medical Center where I'm a patient today. And three months ago, I had surgery number 60. I only count the ones where they put me to sleep. And that was surgery on my hand, trying to rebuild these fingers. They got in there and they added 40% range to my index and thumb, but the other fingers are hopelessly bent until the day of the resurrection. So they get me in that hospital. It's a crazy story, and I'm going to close with it. I'm going to, there's two events I'm going to tell back to back, but I'm going to, I'm going to 
tell the, the first one second and the second one first. So here's the second one first. They put me in a room called, uh, it's called the Intensive Care Unit, ICU. I'd never been in the hospital. I didn't know what ICU was. Until four months later, I figured out they put a robe on me, and it didn't come together in the back. It's the ICU. I didn't go to medical school, but I figured that one out. Then I understood the other thing I didn't know. It's called the draft. <laughs> it was chilly with that thing on. But they put me in the ICU, and they let visitors come in. A woman walked straight over to her husband, who was in the bed next to mine. Thirteen of us, he was the first of the twelve that were left, and eleven more would die. The thirteenth obituary has not yet been written. The devil said, you die, and Jesus said, he will not die. And that day, she walked over to her husband, 100% third degree, no skin, guaranteed to die. And she took her wedding ring off and threw it on the bed. She said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. Try and walked out. He never uttered a word. The last thing they heard from him was a death rattle. He was the first to go. The second one coming in. Ripe old age of 19. Met her when she was 13, you remember? She's the one I made the promise to. She's the one I love with all of my heart. And now she's going to see what's left of her handsome young prince turn to a frog. She stepped up to my bed. The doctor said, this is your husband. She couldn't believe it. I was totally unrecognized. This was all... Charred black. This was all swollen to the width of my shoulder. The rest of my body stunk up the whole hospital. She bent down and kissed what was left of my face. And she looked me in my good eye and she said, I just want you to know. I love you, Davy. Welcome home. And when she says, Davy, <laughs> I said, Doc, I'm getting better. <laughs> She said, welcome home. I said, I'm sorry. She said, why? And all I could think of, I'll be back without a scar. Back. And I said, I can never look good for you again. She said, Davy, you never were good looking. <laughs> we both laughed, and I promise you, laughing hurt me more than it did hurt. <laughs> laughing was my healing. Now, the first event that took place before that, and I close. When they landed the big jet from Japan, it was at, at Travis Air Force Base, but it's also the, uh, there's two other Air Force bases there to use that runway. Lackland is really what it is today. It's where all the recruits for the Air Force go through. And they took me off the, off the big airplane on a stretcher, put me in the helicopter. They flew me across to Brook Army Medical Center at, at Fort Sam Houston. And I have pictures of all this. It's, it's remarkable. They unload you on a stretcher and take you into a room that has this big steel bathtub. You put, probably put four people in. It's that big. But they only put about that much water in it, and it's called pure sailing. And the tank is known as the Hubble tank. And it's the torture pit. If any of you in this room have been burned, you know what the word 
debridement means. That means when they take all the dead skin off, it all has to come off. They can't leave any. It'll infect you. It'll kill you with gangrene. They start taking that skin off, and I go insane. I reached up, and I grabbed one of my nurses by the hair of her head, and I flipped her into the tank with me, and I had her head down in the water. And children, please know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to kill her because I thought she was trying to kill me. There were six of them, and I had one down. She was never at risk. The others helped her out immediately. And I looked up, and now that white uniform is pink with my diluted blood, and her hair is filled with my skin. She wipes her face and hands and goes right back to work on me to save my life. When they got through, they had a little hoist that lifted us out, and they put me on a gurney. And as we went to the room we called death row, remember? We called the debridement room hell. We lived our life going from hell to death row to hell to death row. And on the way back that first day, as the medics pushed me, he said, now, in the morning at 830, we're going to do this again. Well, he shouldn't have Norton have said that. He lit me up. I looked up at him. I said, not you. The entire United States Army is big enough to put me back in that tank. You will never hurt me like that again. He said, okay, okay. It's not like he hadn't heard stuff like that. Okay, he said, you die. Well, I didn't want to hear that. I looked at him. I said, well, let's negotiate. That's what I told him. I said, if you're going to hurt me like that, if you're going to come get me at 830 in the morning, don't tell me. Just do it. Now, I'm going to be awake all night knowing 8.30 in the morning, this golf cart, it had a wobbly wheel. It was a gurney. Sound like a Walmart shopping cart. It's going to come down. I'm going to hear you coming. And you're going to pick me up and take me back to hell. And I was right. Next morning, 8.30, they showed up. With that. I could hear them coming, that wobbly wheel. I, wheel. I hate that wheel. And they got on each end of my, one on my foot in one on my head in, and they grabbed those blue sheets you know how they are one two and they dropped me trying to get me on the stretcher and what happened was they forgot to lock the wheels and the stretcher started rolling and they dropped me and I'm thinking oh this is gonna leave a mark I don't need another mark and I threw out my elbows like little wings and I caught the cart going out this but the rest of my body went down and hit the deck and I'm suspended, trying to keep my upper body from crashing forward, banging my head. And my life would change. A man stepped up I'd never seen before. He was six foot five to six foot seven. He weighed about 350 pounds and there wasn't an ounce of fat on him. The most perfect human specimen I'd ever seen. When he moved, cannonballs popped up on this guy. His shirt stretched when he moved his arm, couldn't contain it in that little sleeve. He was tattooed, he was bald, he was black, and his name was Rosie. <laughs> Literally, 100% true story. It was tattooed on his arm, Rosie, so he could remember. <laughs> you know what he did? He slipped like a forklift arm, he slipped it under the back of my head. And with his left arm, he reached down and picked me up from between the gurney and my bed. And he held me in his arms. Pulled me against that giant chest and I looked up in a face I'd never seen. I thought he was going to turn and put me on the gurney. No gurney for Rosie. 
he carried me all the way to the far end of that long, long corridor to the place we called hell. And you could hear men scream for the hours in that room. They debrided us. They would not let visitors in the hospital because they could be heard three and four floors away screaming in pain. And this is the story that would change my life. They said, Rosie, come get him. He's had enough. He reached down that filthy water, picked me up, and he turned. Again, no gurney for Rosie. He carried me all the way back to death row, lowered me in the bed. But every step he took on the way back, this is what he said. Carry me. I'm going to illustrate it. You'll be fine. I wish I had his voice. Oh, he had a baritone voice. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. Got me to my bed, laid me down, turned and faced me. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. Then he did something. I never let him in. He kissed my forehead. Turned and walked away. Twenty years later, I'm in the great state of Oregon for the, for the Oregon State National Guard 4th of July celebration. 20,000 people. Give me a crowd like that. I love it. I finished and a woman walked up and she said, you're Dave? I said, yes, ma'am. I was a speaker. They didn't have big screen TV. This is 30 years ago, 20 years after my injury. So you see where I'm at time-wise. I said, yes. I, she said, I know you're a speaker, but your name's not Dave. I said, that's really my nickname. She said, you're David. I said, yeah. Anybody could figure that out. You have to be a Pinkerton man. She said, but that's your middle name. No, not everybody would know that. You didn't know that. She said, your first name's Milton. I said, yes, it's Milton. She said, Milton David Reaver. I said, who are you? I'm the nurse you pulled into the tank. I looked at her. I blushed. I turned every shade of red. I said, Madam, forgive me. I'm so sorry. She said, I thought it was you, but I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> I got pictures of her then, 20 years before that. I got pictures of her today because I was with them last 4th of July. Oh, I love that woman. And I remembered, I said, oh, do you remember a guy named Rosie? She said, I haven't thought of him in years. I said, do you know where he is today? She said, no. I, I said, do you know his real name? She said, all I remember is Rosie. It was tattooed on his I said, yes, that's him. Do you know where he came from? She said, no. I said, do you know where he lived? Maybe he's, no, I don't. When did he come to Brook Army Medical Center? When you did, Dave. I said, when did he leave? She said, when you left. My friends all tell me he was an angel. Angels don't have tattoos. <laughs> maybe he was an angel. I don't know. I still look for him in every audience I go to. I thought maybe he was on the platform tonight, today with a baby in his arms. I looked, I checked. Maybe he's an angel and he doesn't age. I don't know. Here's what I do know is. If he's an angel, he's on assignment. But if he's a man, he's on a mission. 
And he was doing what he did because he chose to. He didn't care what color I was. He didn't care what rank I was. He didn't care what branch of service I was in. He only cared about one thing. There's a broken, hurting man. And I'm going to carry him where he cannot go on his own. That's the greatest call of mankind. Please God by letting none perish. And that Rosie, one day I will be able to thank him. Man or angel, I don't know. So I'm closed. I'm done. And I don't say well done because see, when you're burned, you don't want to be well done. Don't stop laughing. Don't stop smiling. Don't stop being happy. Today, when you go into your mission field, take Jesus with you and be a rosy to somebody who can't get there without your help. I'm Dave Reaver, and I approve of this message. Thank you. Oh, my. Oh, my. Thank you. Thank you. I'll kill the time again. Let me ask you one question. Sit down. I'm going to ask you one question. Do you have three minutes and 50 seconds you could blow today and not worry about it? There's something. I have a little short video. Pastor, can I get by with this? Thumbs up. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I, I wasn't, anyway. <clears throat> this video, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. This little video shows you the ranches I built for my warriors. One in Colorado, one in Texas. They're magnificent. But you'll see them. It shows you where I go in the military, downrange Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, UAE, Afghanistan, Iraq, Bosnia, Kosovo. All these countries I go to for my war. You'll see some. If, you're, if you've been downrange, that means you've been in the war zones, you'll recognize. But by, by decree, I cannot label them because they're confidential. But I can show them as long as they're not in video. If you see part of this is video, that it means not a still shot. It's usually in America. In the ranches, you'll see. Too much explanation. Finally, you will see the most difficult thing my government of the United States of America has ever asked of me. It's not to burn in Vietnam. It's not to recover with 60 surgeries. It's none of that. You'll see the most difficult thing I've ever been asked to do. And I'll just tell you what it is. To bring home from the battlefield those that spill their blood and valor, giving their lives. So we can sit in this room and celebrate Jesus. The hardest thing I've ever done is bringing home the sacrifice for freedom. It's called the angel flight. Would you show that, please?
good afternoon. Angel Flight Bravo 03. Gear down five miles. We have a hero on board tonight. Angel Flight Bravo 02, you are number one for landing. Welcome home. So the question begs, are you prepared for your angel flight home? The ticket's already been paid for. When and where it's punched is between God and I guess you. But the big question is, are you prepared? And if you're not ready for that flight home to a place called heaven, it's as easy as the mention of his name. Would you be willing to follow me in a closing prayer? I'm going to ask the believers, those of you walking in fellowship with Christ, to let us pray this prayer as a renewal of our vows. But to those of you who are not walking in relationship with Christ, would you repeat it and make your vows? Would you be willing to do that? It's the same prayer. For us, we're renewing. For you, you're signing a contract with the Almighty. Let's do it right now. Lord Jesus, you are in your house today. I am in your presence in your house today. You're holy. You're righteous. You're just. I am unholy, unrighteous, unjust. I beg you, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. They're many and varied, and I'm truly sorry. But today, in your presence, I confess not only that I'm a sinner, but that you're the Savior of sinners. So Jesus, I ask you, as you forgive me of my sins, and you clean this house out, come dwell in this house, fill this house with your presence, and let me declare with assurance, as I do so now, I am a child of God, born again. You have risen from the dead. I believe the good report. And from this day forward, I'm a follower of Christ. Amen. Celebrate in this house right now. Come on. Lift it up to Jesus. Lift it up to Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, go ahead. Give him the standing ovation. This is Jesus we're honoring. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus.